Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome back indeed. We were out last week for Heritage's 50th anniversary celebration, so we have a lot to cover. We're also coming into the final stretch of the term. Can you believe it's already that time of year, GC? No, it definitely does not feel that way. Well, it probably doesn't feel that way in part because the court has been so slow (laughs) at issuing opinions this term. True. Uh, opinions will probably, I mean, hopefully they better start coming thick and fast in these, yeah, in these next few weeks. Um, but without further ado, let's start with uh, any interesting grants or denials from the last couple weeks. Zach? Yeah, there were a few interesting ones. The court agreed to hear Cully versus Marshall, where the justices will decide whether, and if so, what test should govern the timing of a post-seizure probable cause hearing in the civil asset forfeiture context. The court also agreed to hear two interesting and important First Amendment cases, O'Connor-Ratcliffe v. Garner and Linke v. Freed, that deal with whether, and if so when, a government official's decision to block someone from their private social media accounts can constitute state action giving rise to potential First Amendment or other constitutional claims. Now, of interest, the Chief Justice also transmitted to the House and to the Senate on April 24th proposed changes to the rules of evidence, criminal procedure, civil procedure, bankruptcy procedure, and appellate procedure. So for all of our judges and practicing attorneys out there, be on the lookout. On the order's front, we have one that I'll mention. The court granted an emergency stay of a lower court ruling that suspended the FDA's approval of the abortion pill, mifepristone. Say that two times fast. (laughs) Actually, I had to practice getting that right before (laughs) we got on the air. Well done, well done. A lower court judge had suspended the approval, finding that the FDA's approval process was procedurally flawed. The court issued no opinion when it vacated the order, but Justices Thomas and Alito dissented. Thomas did not issue an opinion, but Alito did, saying essentially that the Fifth Circuit could adequately handle the case and was going to hear oral argument in a month anyway. He also essentially accused the FDA of engaging in gamesmanship to force this issue to the Supreme Court. Most interestingly, however, he also accused Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and Barrett of hypocrisy and not without some merit. They have all taken very strong positions opposing the use of what they call the shadow docket or the emergency docket. (laughs) I I was going to say, GC, we've talked about this. It's Uh, not the shadow docket. (laughs) I I know. I know. Justice Kagan and Sotomayor call it the shadow docket. Barrett, for her part, is careful to call it the emergency docket. All right. Good. Uh, But they have all taken very strong positions uh, against staying lower court orders with what Kagan calls scanty review. Uh, especially in the face of agency gamesmanship. And yet here, they all did exactly that uh, and didn't even explain their reasoning. So in fairness, I think Alito has a strong point. They should at least have explained why they think this case is different from the ones uh, previously. Hmm. Very interesting. GC, what's been happening at oral argument this week? So uh, this was the last week of the court's oral argument calendar. Hmm. Uh, The court finished out the term hearing arguments in some pretty high-profile cases, uh, one of which was Groff versus DeJoy. This case is going to decide when an employee can get a religious accommodation from his work schedule. 
the plaintiff here was a postal worker. He's Christian. He asked his supervisor not to schedule him for work on Sunday because he believes the day should be treated as a Sabbath. He sued under Title VII, which forbids religious discrimination and requires accommodations unless they would impose an undue hardship on the employer. But he lost his case because under a 1977 precedent called Transworld Airlines versus Hardison, the court interpreted the phrase undue hardship to mean anything that imposes more than a de minimis cost on the employer. Now, there's an obvious problem of the poor fit between the statutory text and the judicial test. There's another problem, which is that the court has in other contexts, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, given employees much more protection. So Groff asks essentially why should religious employees get less protection than other people? Justices Thomas Alito and Gorsuch have previously called for the court to revisit Hardison, and they remained consistent during oral argument. The liberal justices were not interested. The other three justices seemed open to leaving Hardison more or less in place, but uh, maybe with the idea of changing the nature of the de minimis test. Yeah, this is a very interesting case and a very important case. Like you said, GC, it's it was litigated in the lower courts by our friends over at First Liberty and Aaron Street from Baker Botts argued on behalf of Mr. Groff at the Supreme Court, and I thought he did a fantastic job. The court also heard arguments this week in Counterman versus Colorado. The issue in this case is when prosecuting someone, must the government prove on a subjective or on an objective basis that a statement constitutes a true threat unprotected by the First Amendment? In this case, Billy Counterman sent threatening, or so some would say, Facebook messages to a local musician. The state of Colorado prosecuted him for stalking. He was convicted, and a judge sentenced him to four and a half years in prison. The state of Colorado, though, in obtaining that conviction, used an objective standard. Would a reasonable person find the statement threatening? Counterman, represented by veteran advocate John Elwood, argued in front of the Supreme Court that holding someone criminally liable using an objective standard is inappropriate and that the justices should require that a subjective standard be used instead, which would mean that the government would have to prove that Counterman intended for his statement to be threatening, not just that a reasonable person would have thought that the statement was threatening. While the justices seem skeptical of Colorado's objective standard, some of them, including Justices Alito and Kavanaugh, seem more receptive to adopting a middle position standard of recklessness, which would require the government to prove that Counterman acted recklessly when he made the threatening statement, which was the position advocated for by the U.S. Department of Justice, which weighed in as an amici on Colorado's side. Justices Gorsuch, Thomas, and Barrett seem particularly concerned with the objective standard given today's heightened political climate and the hypersensitivity exhibited in some areas, such as higher education. While it's unclear what test the justices will ultimately adopt, it seems likely, based on the oral argument, that there are not five votes to uphold Colorado's objective standard. We also had two fascinating consolidated cases, Yegia Zarian, I hope I got that right, versus Smoggin, and CMB Monaco versus Smoggin. So these cases will decide whether a foreign plaintiff can bring a racketeering claim in the United States for injuries to intangible property, and the facts are uh, pretty exciting. So there were two Russian fraudsters. 
I'm interested. Tell me more. <laughs> so these two Russian fraudsters defrauded Smogin of his shares in a Moscow real estate venture. The fraudsters fled to California where they lived a luxurious life in a Beverly Hills mansion. <laughs> so are you saying, GC, that crime does sometimes pay? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe apparently. Uh, I, I want to hear the end of this story before we reach that <laughs> conclusion. All right. So Smogin launched arbitration proceedings against them in London, and he was awarded a judgment of $92 million. All right. So maybe crime doesn't pay after all. Well, hold your breath because Smoggin filed an action in California federal court to enforce that judgment. He did get a judgment there, but then the fraudsters engaged in a wild and complicated conspiracy, including uh, fake judgments from other <laughs> courts to make it look like they had no money for him to take. So Smoggin filed a racketeering claim arguing that they harmed his property, which in this case is the California judgment. Is a judgment that an arbitration award is enforceable property? And is the harm suffered in the United States or is the harm suffered in London where the arbitration award was originally given? Uh, those are the issues. We'll find out soon. Well, more importantly, GC, when can I expect the major motion picture based on this set of facts to, <laughs> to hit a theater near me? Uh, that's, a, that's a wild story. GC, before we get to our final oral argument of the term, why don't you give us a few other OAs uh, quickly that the court also heard recently? Sure. So in Slack Technologies versus Pirani, the court will decide whether plaintiffs bringing claims that a security registration was misleading have to prove that they actually bought those securities registered under that registration statement. In Charter Day School versus Peltier, the court will decide whether a private entity that runs a charter school is a state actor and thus can be sued uh, for allegedly violating the Constitution when it promulgates a dress code that requires a different attire for boys and girls. In Schwett versus Supervalue, the court will decide whether a defendant's subjective belief is relevant to determine whether he knowingly committed fraud. And finally, in Lac de Flambeau Indians versus Coughlin, the court will decide whether the bankruptcy code abrogates the sovereign immunity of Indian tribes, that is, whether they can be subject to bankruptcy proceedings. Yeah, that last case, GC, is actually very fascinating on a lot of fronts. And so even though it hasn't been one of the high-profile cases this term, it'll certainly be an important one and one with a lot of interesting legal issues uh, for the court to resolve. Yeah, this this whole term has been shaping up to be a really interesting term in terms of uh, state and tribal sovereignty. Well, that brings us to our final oral argument that the court heard this term, Tyler versus Hennepin County. Uh, this case was brought by our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and the facts of this case are stunning. Hennepin County in Minnesota seized 93-year-old Geraldine Tyler's former home for about $15,000 or so in unpaid property taxes. The county sold the home for $40,000 and kept the entire profit even after the tax debt, including all additional penalties, costs, and fees, had been satisfied. All told, the county reaped about a $25,000 profit on the property. The justices are being asked to decide whether this practice violates the Fifth Amendment's takings clause and whether the forfeiture of property worth far more than that needed to satisfy a debt, plus interest, penalties, and costs, is a fine within the meaning of the Eighth Amendment. Neil Katyal celebrated his 50th argument before the court arguing on behalf of Hennepin County. 
By all accounts, though, it was a rough argument for him. The justices seemed unpersuaded by his position that Miss Tyler didn't have standing or the legal ability to bring the case, and the justices also seemed skeptical of his merits arguments. Interesting, while the Justice Department filed a friend-of-the-court brief supporting Tyler's takings clause claim, they put forward a different rationale for why Hennepin County's actions constituted a taking, especially with respect to what property interest was taken and when a takings claim could arise. It's not clear on what rationale the justices will ultimately resolve the case, but it seems likely that the court will ultimately rule in Ms. Tyler's favor. And that finally brings us to opinions. The first one up is Axon versus the Federal Trade Commission. This case is a big deal in administrative law. The court here held that How if big you are, of a deal, GC? <laughs> a very big deal. <laughs> the court held that if you are subject to an agency enforcement action and you want to challenge the constitutionality of the agency or its structure, you can bring those challenges directly to federal district court. Uh, the decision was 9-0 with Justice Elena Kagan writing the opinion, and it turned on the application of a test from a case called Thunder Basin, which is an excellent Mad Max-style name for the case. That <laughs> test is uh, judicial gloss, essentially, on top of a jurisdictional statute, and it tries to determine whether certain claims are the sort that Congress intended to give exclusively to agencies' in-house courts. Kagan wrote that constitutional challenges do not satisfy that test. Justice Thomas joined her opinion but wrote separately to say that he is skeptical that Congress has the power to vest primary authority in agencies to decide cases involving what he called core private rights, life, liberty, property. Uh, he wrote that when private rights are at stake, full Article Three adjudication is likely required. Justice Gorsuch concurred in the result but said that he would simply throw out the Thunder Basin test and just use the plain language of the underlying jurisdictional statute. Now, why is this case such a big deal? Until now, you could spend years, more than a decade in many cases, fighting an enforcement action in a biased agency tribunal that might have been unconstitutional, and you couldn't even raise that challenge in federal court. You might spend years uh, and tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees in an unconstitutional proceeding. It was manifest injustice. Now, thankfully, those claims can be sent right to federal court. All right, GC, you've persuaded me this is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious, though, do you think Justice Kagan wrote the opinion so that it would be drafted more narrowly than it might otherwise have been? I don't know. Um, I mean, the fact that nobody joined Gorsuch or Thomas's opinions um, suggests maybe not, but who knows? Sure. Well, that brings us to our next decision, New York versus New Jersey. This was a very interesting case, and it was a unanimous decision by Justice Kavanaugh where the court held that New Jersey could unilaterally withdraw from its Waterfront Commission compact with New York where the compact itself was silent as to withdrawal. Now, by way of background, New York and New Jersey originally entered into the compact and Congress approved it in 1953 for the purpose of investigating and combating organized crime. It created a bi-state agency, the Waterfront Commission of New York Harbor, to do just that and to broadly exercise both states' delegated sovereign regulatory and law enforcement authority at the port. But over time, conditions at the port changed and the commission itself came under heavy criticism for its actions. Because of this, New Jersey moved to withdraw from the compact in 2018. The commission itself sued in lower federal courts to stop the withdrawal, 
but the Third Circuit determined that state sovereign immunity barred the commission's suit against New Jersey. So, New York filed a bill of complaint against New Jersey in the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing that New Jersey could not unilaterally withdraw. The court, though, agreed with New Jersey. It said where a compact's text does not address withdrawal, the court looks to background principles of law, which in this case were principles of contract law. The court said that these background principles and principles of state sovereignty supported New Jersey's position. To be clear, though, the court said that the contract law rule it applied in this case, which involved a compact requiring ongoing indefinite performance by both states, does not apply to other kinds of compacts, such as compacts setting boundaries, apportioning water rights, or otherwise conveying property interests. We also had a 6-3 decision in Reed v. Gertz, written by Justice Kavanaugh. The claim there was a Section 1983 claim, which is a claim alleging that a state official violated your constitutional rights, and it was based on a procedural due process violation. The issue was, when does the statute of limitations for that kind of claim begin to run? And the court said that it does not begin to run until state litigation ends. In this case, Reed was convicted of murder in 1996. He filed all sorts of appeals and collateral challenges, and after losing all of them, filed a Section 1983 procedural due process claim alleging that a Texas law limiting the availability of DNA testing denied him access to potentially exculpatory evidence. The lower courts held that this challenge was untimely because the two-year statute of limitations started running when the trial court denied his motion for DNA testing. The Supreme Court, however, disagreed, saying that it didn't start running until after the Court of Appeals denied his motion for rehearing. The rule is that a procedural due process claim is not complete when the original deprivation occurs, but is complete only when the state fails to provide due process. Now, Justice Thomas dissented on the basis that Reed's claim either violates the Rooker-Feldman doctrine, which prohibits federal courts from acting as appellate courts for state courts, or violates Article III standing requirements because the district court couldn't actually order the district attorney to grant Reed's testing demand. Justice Alito, joined by Gorsuch, also dissented on the basis that the violation occurred whenever the Texas DNA testing law became authoritative, which was when the state courts ruled against him, uh, and that was outside the limitations period. That brings us to our next case, Turkaya Hawk Bankasi versus U.S., this was a 7-2 decision by Justice Kavanaugh holding that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act does not deny a district court jurisdiction to hear a criminal case against a foreign bank that belongs to a foreign government. The bank here is an instrumentality of the Turkish government, and the feds brought a criminal case against it alleging that it violated American sanctions against Iran. The bank said that it was protected by the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, but the court said that the act's plain language does not apply to criminal cases. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Alito, dissented in part on the grounds that the act creates a general framework for analyzing all sovereign immunity claims, including those arising from criminal cases. Last up, we had MOAC Mall Holdings versus Transform Hold Co. This was a unanimous decision by Justice Jackson holding that a bankruptcy code provision uh, is not jurisdictional. Now, I will skip the technical details and just say that what mattered to the court was whether or not the plain language of the statute makes it clear that it has jurisdictional effect. Here, it did not. That is the final opinion of the week. Unfortunately, time constraints prohibit us from having an interview this week, but we will do trivia right after this. 
The reading clerk will now call the roll. Bibbs. It's money and power that control this town. Bishop of North Carolina. All we're talking about chaos and dysfunction in Washington because Republicans didn't sit down like Democrats do. Crane. It's like this cul-de-sac of greed and corruption and it just keeps going around and around. Gates. I felt like it doesn't even matter which party wins the majority because both sides are working for the same lobbyists. Luna. I had a reporter that basically accosted me in the hallway saying really vile stuff. Perry. One member came up to me and said, your presence disgusts me. Roy. So maybe the American people need to know the truth. And it's extraordinary what happens when you tell the truth in this town. People go, what the hell are you doing? Like, why would you do that? The fact is, we won because we were telling the truth. What you've just listened to is our brand new exclusive documentary about the 20 House Republicans who fought against the Washington establishment. We sat down with representatives Chip Roy of Texas, Eli Crane and Andy Biggs of Arizona, Anna Paulina Luna and Matt Gates of Florida, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania and Dan Bishop of North Carolina about the speaker race and why they chose to take a stand. The documentary is now available on The Daily Signal's YouTube, Facebook and Instagram pages. Zach, it is my turn to quiz you with trivia. Aren't you excited? I think we're out of time, GC. Didn't you say something about time constraints? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, we're not. <laughs> all right. As let's, you noticed, let's get this over with. <laughs> all right. As you noted at the outset, the Supreme Court has been very slow to issue opinions this term. To put it in historical perspective, I have turned to the excellent data skills of Dr. Adam Feldman, who runs the blog Empirical SCOTUS. Today's trivia is about the Supreme Court's pace and includes a few other interesting observations about the historical oddities of this term. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So as of April 14th, the court had issued eight merits decisions. Where do you think that ranks compared to the last hundred years? Obviously not the top, but maybe the middle, bottom half, bottom quarter? I would think it has to be close to the very, very bottom uh, in terms of where the court should be at this time of its term. That is correct. In fact, it is the very bottom. It is the lowest number of decisions by April 14th by a long shot. The next lowest was last year, where the court had already issued 20 opinions. Interesting. Why do you so, think that is, GC? Well, I... that's an interesting question. I don't want to—time constraints prohibit me from speculating. <laughs> oh, GC. <laughs> All right, number two. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Who's grilling who here? Uh, well, I guess we'll have to find I'm out, won't we? I'm asking the questions here, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number two. How many, ballpark, how many cases uh, do you think the Supreme Court decided by April 14th, 100 years ago? Well, I would certainly say significantly more <laughs> than it currently is uh, deciding, uh, and that'll be my, my answer. You're absolutely right. More than 100, sometimes a lot more. 1923, incidentally, was the highest year of the last 100 years. The court decided 176 cases by April 14th. The number has steadily fallen ever since. The last time the court breached 100 was in the mid-60s. Number three, only one justice has so far been in the majority of every decision yet issued this term. Who is it? 
I believe it's Justice Jackson, if I'm not mistaken. You are correct. Now, granted, we've only had eight merits decisions, but (laughs) still, uh, it's very unusual as a historical matter for the newest justice to be uh, the last justice standing, that is the last justice to dissent. Uh, She has neither dissented nor, in fact, concurred in any merits decisions. But has she dissented uh, from cert denials a few times, I think? Yes, that is correct. Okay, okay. Now, number four, only one other justice has pulled off the same feat of being both the newest justice and the last justice standing. Who is it? Hmm. Give me a hint, GC. I I need to phone a friend here. Well, um, let me think. This is uh, one of the current justices. Well, I still have eight others (laughs) to choose from. Uh, I I don't know. I would guess it's one of the court's new additions, either Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, or or Barrett. Correct. And it is, in fact, Kavanaugh. Uh, Kavanaugh is quite often, in fact, the last justice standing each term. Only the chief uh, has more wins by this measure. Very interesting. Number five. Although it is uh, unusual for a new justice not to have written any separate opinions in merits cases so far, it is somewhat less unusual for a new justice not to dissent very much in their first year. Only two of the current justices authored more dissents in their first year than in subsequent years. Who uh, are those two justices? That's a tough one, GC. So they authored, you're saying they authored more dissents in their first year as a percentage of their dissents than they did in subsequent years. Correct. As a percentage of the opinions they wrote. Right. I don't know. I will guess Justice Thomas, uh, because he you know, has very good, very strong views on a lot of issues. And then I don't know the other one. So th- I'll guess Justice Thomas is one of the answers. That is correct. Justice Thomas is one of them. The other one will actually surprise you. It is Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, somehow, both the last justice standing very frequently, but also uh, a pretty prolific dissenter in his first year. Very interesting indeed. Well, uh, well done. Uh, good good questions today, GC. Very interesting <laughs> stuff. Well done, you. Is that yeah, what you're yeah. going to say? Were you going to congratulate yourself? A little at? bit. I, I was, <laughs> those were tough questions, GC. <laughs> you did well. You did well. Uh, I appreciate you lying to me. Keep it up. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.